Join with me reading the scripture tonight, uh, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And I'm using the uh, English Standard Version. Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. This is uh, Isaiah's vision of the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Please be seated. Well, I'm very happy to be with you this evening, and I'm very grateful for your presence tonight. I'm always encouraged by your presence. The singing is always very beautiful. And we're thankful, Lynn, for the way you've led us in this uh, worship service, for the prayers. Thank you, Perry, for the scripture reading tonight out of this great passage of Isaiah chapter 6. And I invite your attention to this consideration as we look at this sixth chapter. And I have to confess it's one of my favorite chapters out of the book of Isaiah. There are a number that I would include in that category, but this certainly is one of them. You and I have been studying the book of Isaiah on Wednesday nights, and we've been looking at it verse by verse, item by item, trying to get a better understanding and a better hold on this great Old Testament book of the Bible. I've made the statement more than once, if I could only know one Old Testament book, it'd be the book of Isaiah, because it tells me so much about the New Testament, and it's quoted so many times in the pages of the New Testament. It's certainly one that I want to devote my time and my attention So I thought that it would be a good study for us from time to time on Sunday night to pick out some of these chapters that we're studying and discuss them from the pulpit. And then also I thought of the great book of the New Testament, 1 Timothy, which we're beginning to finish in our auditorium Bible class. And I thought it would be a good practice for us maybe to devote ourselves a time or two to a study of 1 Timothy from the pulpit as well as we're looking at it item by item and line by line in our Sunday morning Bible class. And so that really is the reason behind my selection tonight of this topic, though it is one that I surely need, and I believe it is one that will help you as well. The time is 739 B.C. As you read in the beginning moments of chapter 6, in the year that Isaiah died. Oddly enough, historians say that's the very year that Rome was founded on the Tiber River. Whether that be true or not, it is ancient time of Israel, and Israel's filled with a heart-sick thought of the fact 
the third great king of 52 years, has died. This king was a great king. It was a good king. It was a king which did uh, follow the will of God and uh, followed uh, his word as well as he possibly could. And it was a time of great prosperity for the children of Israel. However, often when prosperity comes, there is a deal of pride and arrogance in the heart of the ruler. And that was the problem with Isaiah. Isaiah would go into the temple and there offer the sacrifice, that which he did not have the right to do. The priest tried to stop him from doing that, but he went ahead anyway. And in doing so, God struck him with leprosy. And with the rest of his life, he lived a life of a leper, alienated from the rest of the group in his own house. His son, Jotham, would reign. He'd been reigning for some 12 years by this time. They would reign together, Uzziah, the leper king, and Jotham, his son. Jotham, 16 years of reigning, would be a faithful, dedicated king of God. He would in turn be faithful to the word of God and the instruction which God had given him. His son Ahaz, though, was a different story altogether. Ahaz was a man who was wicked from beginning to end. And there's just no way that one can really describe how wicked Ahaz was. And so the Bible writer simply says that he tried to put up an idol under every green tree of the people of Judah and Jerusalem. He would not follow the will of the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, the vision of Isaiah the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. We'll talk about Hezekiah on another occasion. But we see that these were the days of Isaiah. And Isaiah was in the temple on this occasion. But his heart is filled with a great deal of grief, and so is the heart of the children of Judah, because this wonderful king, King Uzziah, serving his kingdom for 52 years, has now died. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne. Isaiah is in the temple. Isaiah's heart is filled with grief because he too is concerned over this matter about the death of Isaiah. And so not only the nation but the prophet mourns the death of a very fine king, Isaiah, 52 years. He made a mistake at the end of his life due to pride and arrogance, but still a faithful, counted as a faithful king of God. And when Isaiah goes to the temple, he sees this great vision of God. And I've often studied this particular passage of Scripture, and you and I have studied it together as well. And it's a passage of Scripture which is saying, here's something that Isaiah really needed. And I have to tell you, I wish I could get a glimpse of what Isaiah saw. I have what Isaiah recorded for me in the pages of the Bible, and I have other references with regard to the greatness and the glory of God. But I wish I could have seen what Isaiah saw. That's the first thing that I want to talk about tonight. I want to talk about Isaiah in the temple. And I want to take a look at his upward look. This is the direction that he needed to be looking. He needed to be looking upward because it was a time of heartache and sorrow. He needed to be looking upward because it was a time of difficulty in the lives of the children of Israel. In the year that King Isaiah died, I mean Isaiah 6 and 1, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. 
Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called another to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This was the thing that Isaiah needed to see. In a time of suffering, in a time of difficulty, when his heart was very low, he needed to have that upward look where he's looking to God and realize that even though the king has died, this great king of 52 years is dead, God still is on the throne. And God still reigns over his people. But that's the thing that he needed. He needed to see that. And I often think in times of life when difficult things come, to our, come our way, isn't that what we need to be doing? Instead of having this inward look, we ought to be having an upward look. We ought to be looking toward God as the one for our help, having our confidence in Him and having our faith in Him. And that's the lesson that Isaiah learned. Isaiah learned that even in a very difficult time and very uncertain circumstances as these, he needed to be looking at the right place and going to the right one, which was God. And in turn, God did not disappoint as he never does. And what does Isaiah see? He sees this seraphim, or seraphim as sometimes referred to. This is the only time and place that it's referred to in the pages of the Bible. So it gives us some serious thought and consideration as to who these heavenly beings are. Some would say that these are angels. Some would say that they're not angels. But a special order of heavenly beings, whatever they might be or however we might categorize them, they are created spiritual beings. And the best that we can come to understand with regard to the seraphim is that they are created spiritual beings for the purpose of praising God. And that's what they do in our passage tonight. Isaiah chapter 6 and the verses, verse 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. point that's being made here tonight is that God is holy. Now let me make a point here about the way the phrasing is given to us in verse verse 3 of our chapter tonight. Passage makes very clear that when God says something once, then that makes it important. But when God says something twice, that makes it extra important, doesn't it? But when God says something three times, that means we should really listen up and listen to what God has to say about the matter. And three times he's expressing the fact of this superlative. I read one expositor who put it this way. It is a super superlative. The Hebrew way of expressing the holy or the divine nature of God. And it may be that Isaiah is so impressed with this divine uh, impression, with this divine uh, discussion of God's nature, that he calls him throughout the pages of this Bible and the book, The Holy One of Israel. And it is an expression that's given directly to him. The whole earth is full of his glory. And, of course, the point is made there that there's not just a limited uh, phase or fear of which God is in charge. God is responsible for the whole earth. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the Bible is just filled with Bible passages which tell us of this particular matter. Turn with me to an interesting passage, Psalm 45. And it's just one that came to mind, though I could have picked out any number, as we have this upward look 
toward God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of righteousness. This whole psalm is devoted to the fact of the great glory of God. He is lofty, He is lifted up, He is exalted. And I think the point that God is giving to Isaiah in these early moments of the book of Isaiah is that there's no reason to fear. When you really come to understand something of the holy nature of God, that the whole earth is full of His glory, there's no need to fear. No matter what might be happening with regard to the earthly throne in Jerusalem or what might be happening in your life, there's no real need to fear when we come to understand something of the holy nature of God. It fills us with faith and it fills us with confidence. Now let's think a little bit about this upward look as we begin to think about what Isaiah saw. And again I say, I wish I could have seen that. I wish I could have had a glimpse of what he actually saw in this vision of Isaiah chapter 6. These angels, heavenly beings, singing the praises of God. Holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is filled with His glory. Now, if I could get a hold of that and get that in my mind, what would that do for me and my prayer life? Prayer no longer would be a string of memorized platitudes, would it? But now the prayer would be coming from the depth of my heart and would it be expressing my true need and the desires of my heart because I've gotten a glimpse of the upward look, the true nature of God. Holy, holy, holy. Now prayer is a wonderful opportunity which God has given me as His child to communicate with Him through Jesus Christ. If I could just get a good glimpse and an understanding of the true nature of God by looking upward at Him, what would that do to my Bible study? Now, no longer would I look at the Bible as kind of a dull, drab thing that I've got to do, but now I would look at the Bible and my Bible study as as a wonderful opportunity to learn more of the King of kings and Lord of lords, to learn more about the one who created the world in which I live, who created me and who created my soul. Now it's an exciting opportunity and an adventure to learn something new about the one who is holy, holy, holy. If I can get that upward look in my heart and in my mind and try to grasp as much as I can as to the true nature of God, look what it would do to my prayer life. Look what it would do to my Bible study. And look what it would do to the way I live my life every single day and my service to others, that I would be serving Him, knowing that the whole earth is full of His glory. If I could just get a glimpse of what it was like. What I have is this description found for me in the pages of the Bible. But if I could see more of it as much as I possibly could from what the Bible reveals, it'll change my life. It'll create revolutions in my life. It'll make my prayer life real. It'll make my Bible study more important. It'll make my daily life all the more important that I live it for God and live it for others. Because I've had a glimpse of the one who's holy. 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 One of my favorite stories out of the pages of the Old Testament is the story about Moses who was so discouraged 
He'd listen to the bickering and the complaining of the children of Israel. Leading them out of Egyptian bondage by the power of God. Moses says to God, Lord, if I could just see you, I could make it. Everything would be fine. But you know that story. How that God said to Moses, in my glory you could not live. You can't see me. But I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. And I'll cover you over with my hand. And when I pass by, you'll be able to see my hind parts. And there from the cleft of the rock, Moses saw the back of God. And now Moses somehow is able to put up with the bickering and the complaining and the foot dragging of the children of Israel and lead them all the way to the point of crossing over the Jordan River into the promised land. But Moses would not be allowed to go into the promised land. As you'll recall, Moses was taken to be with God. And that always bothered me. But I know that Moses was going to a much better place than what the promised land would be for the children of Israel. Oh, it would be a land flowing with milk and honey. But yet God was going to a land, Moses was going to a land that God had prepared for him, his home in heaven. And upon Mount Nebo's lofty heights, the soul of Moses and God go hand in hand. To be with God and to understand something of the holiness of God changes my life and makes me the kind of person God wants me to really be. And that's what Isaiah needed, and that's what God gave him. God gave him the ability to see something of his glory. If you turn to the book of Revelation, you'll find a little bit of that discussion in the fourth chapter, where John talks about the throne room scene in the fourth chapter After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, And seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. It's a beautiful passage. And I love to read chapter 4 and chapter 5 because it talks about that upward look. When you're discouraged and you have difficulties and times of problem, setbacks and reversals, look upward and then allow yourself to read and understand more of the holy nature of God. Now in Isaiah chapter 6, the amazing thing about this particular passage is that when he saw something of the nature of God, he also had an inward look. And the inward look which Isaiah had showed how far a field or a part he was from God. He said in verse 5, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He realized when he began to look on the inside how 
what a gap there was between him and God. How that he was not the kind of man he should have been or could have been. He was undone. In fact, that's the point that he's saying, I am undone. I have seen God. Symbolically saying, I'm a man of unclean lips. But you know what happens when a man has unclean lips? It's because he has an unclean heart. And for that reason, Isaiah knows that he is a man who's guilty of sin. When you and I really come to terms with the holiness of God, then we are going to see something of our own shortcomings, the sin that is in our life. The seraphim took a coal from off uh, the um, altar. It says burning coal here. It might be. The word could be rock, a burning stone or something, a very hot coal. They'd taken from the altar with the tongs, and he touched his mouth. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. What a wonderful thing it is to have one's sins forgiven. To know that all that one has done is no longer involved in that guilt and no longer responsible for that. In Psalm 51 and 10, you're going to find a statement by David. Create in me a clean heart, O God. There David is saying, I'm a man that's guilty, and I want forgiveness. And so it is. God is allowing this man to have forgiveness. And he's preparing this man to do the work uh, of, uh, of God in the matter. Isaiah has conviction, and now he is confessing. And by confessing, through this symbolic act, he has cleansing. But turn with me to a New Testament passage that has more to do with your cleansing and my cleansing, and it's found in 1 John chapter 1. And in that particular passage, it talks about a matter of confessing as well. John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. The Bible passage is telling us the responsibility which we have to confess our faults before God. Now let's be clear about this matter. Romans chapter 10, Matthew chapter 10, are talking about the alien sinner coming and confessing their faith in Christ Jesus and becoming a Christian. They confess their faith in Christ, repenting of their sins, and being baptized into Christ. It is at that point that they receive forgiveness of sin, Acts 2, verse 38. The passage in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 is talking about our confession of sin once we've been obedient to the gospel. That sin will come up in our lives at times. And we will take an inward look at our life. And we will look at the greatness and the holiness of God and we will come to see the shortcomings that we have and the sins that we've committed. And those need to be confessed and they need to be repented of. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm grateful for that point, all unrighteousness. When I take that inward look and I consider the matter of sin, how great the sin is, and I take that inward look, and I consider the penalty for sin and how great that penalty is, and I take that inward look, and I look at salvation and how great the salvation is, then I'm grateful that everything that God has done for me, that I can receive forgiveness of sin, 
and the blood of Christ continually cleansing and cleansing. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood about these matters at all. That's why I work hard at being very specific and trying to explain in detail what the Bible is saying. It is saying that for the child of God who commits sin, there is forgiveness. There is a plan of pardon for the person who's never obeyed the gospel to repent and confess and be baptized. There is a plan of pardon for the individual who has obeyed the gospel but needs to repent and pray and confess their sins before God. And that's what we're looking at in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. Not only do we have the upward look in times of difficulty, trial, and trouble, not only do we have the inward look when we begin to understand something of the holy nature of God, but Isaiah and Isaiah chapter 6 is giving us the outward look. And that's what the rest of this chapter focuses upon. Then one of the seraphims, verse 6, flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Deity asked the question, who will carry the message? Who will go out among others and represent God and teach God's word to other people? And then I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people. Now before I actually get into the discussion of uh, the matter, I want to emphasize the point that is being made. What a privilege and a pleasure, and what an honor it was for God to say to Isaiah, I want you to go deliver this message to my people. It was a great privilege and a great pleasure whereby Isaiah would take upon him the responsibility of teaching God's Word to those who were wayward. It was not going to be an easy task. It was going to be very difficult as subsequent verses are going to teach. But at the same time, he's honored by God and truly blessed by God. And he sees in this particular matter, being convicted and cleansed, a great commission. A commission to go out and preach and teach the Word of God to people who really needed it. It was the message that they needed to hear. The thing that he's going to tell Isaiah is this. They're closing their hearts to the message, verse 9 and 10. And they don't want to hear it. And so now with you and I together in this particular matter, let's focus our attention on this very important discussion that God gives Isaiah with regard to the reception of the message that Isaiah is going to give. Keep on hearing. Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and the ears heavy. And blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Now, expositors have long time looked at this particular passage and they thought, well, isn't this a rather unusual commission to be given to Isaiah? Isn't this somewhat a commission that says they're not going to listen, but I want you to tell them anyway? Isn't this a commission which says 
their resistance will turn into rejection and that they will not listen to the message which God has in store for them. The message that they need, but not the message that they will, that they will respond to. But one thing's very clear. God is not sending them a message that will tickle their ears. By that expression, <clears throat> we simply mean it's not going to be the message necessarily that they want to hear, but it is the message that they need to hear. New Testament writers will quote this particular passage, such as the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 11, verses 7 and 8, and describe for us the kind of rejection that people throughout all ages will have, the opposition to the message of God. And here is Isaiah, cleansed and prepared to go out and take the message. But God tells Isaiah, I want you to know something. Their hearts are hard. And their eyes they have blinded. And their ears they've turned against the message. But I want you to give them the message that they need to hear. Now obviously, I think the next question that comes to mind, it certainly would be my question. If to hear such a, a response like that from God and such a duty and an obligation coming from God, the very next thing I would naturally want to ask is, how long do I have to preach that? How long do I have to do this? And he says, then I said, verse 11, how long, O Lord? How long do you give this message? How long do you go out and preach and teach this kind of message to people who don't want to see it and don't want to hear it, whose hearts are hardened over the matter? How long? It's an outward look. And God's answer to that is really built around one little word. The little word is until. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until. And he gives a rather lengthy answer with regard to the question which Isaiah poses. But the answer is a very clear one. You're going to preach until. For example... Down there at the bottom of the passage, you're going to see a rather interesting verse, verse 13. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a timberanth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. You're going to preach this message until a remnant arises. And he uses the illustration of a tree that's cut down. And some trees, when they're cut down... Uh, a sprout will come up out from the stump of the tree. And he says, now like the temperanth or the oak tree, a sprout is going to come up. And there's going to be a remnant that will come from that tree. You're going to preach the message until that remnant arises. Until that group that will hear the word of God and will respond to it. Now it's obvious some people will not respond to the Word of God. You're going to preach the Word of God until they reject it and turn away from it. You're still going to be available in preaching and teaching it, but you're going to keep preaching even though they turn away and reject that message. Jesus said that in Matthew chapter 7 when He warned us about the broad way, and many there be that find it. 
There would be few that would find the narrow way, but many would find the broad way. But yet the message would be preached until. Even though rejected, the message is still preached. Lord, how long am I to give this outward look? How long am I to continue preaching this message? Even though you've told me to preach it to a people, uh, a group who are hard-hearted and will not listen to the Word of God. He said, you will preach that until the end comes. And I choose to look at verse 11 and 12 now. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until... Cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. You're going to preach the message until the end comes. Now for Isaiah and Isaiah's people, the end came at the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, and the destruction of the nation and the carrying away into Babylon. That was their end. The until for us is going to continue all the way into the time of our demise and or the time of the Lord's second coming. We're going to preach the gospel until. Even though we face a world and a community, a culture and a country which does not want to hear the word of God and does not want to have any understanding of the Word of God and has a hard heart toward the Word of God and is dull of hearing toward the Word of God, still the Word of God is taught until those few who will hear and obey have heard the Word of God. And the Word of God is to continue to be preached until the end comes, until the end of the world, when Christ comes again. We're no longer here, whichever end might be. There in turn, may no one ever be able to say, I never did hear that message of the cross. Well, I never did hear about Jesus Christ. I didn't know anything about that. May no one on the judgment day ever be able to say, Well, I didn't know anything about a message about Jesus. So that we will preach the gospel of Christ until every man, woman, boy, and girl hears the message of a suffering Savior who lived and died and was raised from the dead for their salvation. That's the outward look. Now, I'm told by people who understand these matters, I don't know it myself, but I'm told yesterday 200,000 people died. Seems to be a lot to me, but I suppose that's the way it is. I don't know. That's what statisticians have told us. And tomorrow, on the average, 200,000 more people are going to die, and they're going to die of disease, and they're going to die of war, and they're going to die of poverty, and they're going to die of all kinds of different uh, reasons. And so many, many of them are going to die having never heard the message. And sometimes we think, how long are we supposed to preach this gospel plan of salvation, this church of the Lord, which we read in the pages of the Bible? 
How long are we going to preach this to people who won't see, to people who won't hear, to people who don't want to understand, to people who want to argue in the face of plain Scripture? How long are we going to preach that we're going to preach this until the end comes or our demise so that no one will ever be able to say, I never heard that message before. I never heard the gospel. May the church of our Lord, this beautiful brotherhood, have such an outward look that we're going to preach and teach the Word of God even in the face of those who will not hear and those who will not accept. Now that's the point. So many times we hear today in today's message, we need to make it more acceptable. We need to make it more user-friendly. But Isaiah's job was not to make the message more acceptable. Isaiah's job was to make the message more available. And he was to take the message which God had given him and preach to a people who didn't want to hear. And he asked, Lord, how long am I supposed to keep that up? And the Lord said, you're going to keep that up until, until the end comes and they're carried away into captivity. How long are we going to preach the gospel of Christ? We're going to preach it until. We're going to preach it until the end comes. Our own end. Or until the Lord comes again. That's the upward look. The inward look. And the outward look. Of Isaiah chapter 6. One of the great chapters of all the Bible. If you've never obeyed the gospel of Christ tonight, I urge you to do so right now. To repent of sin and confess your faith in Christ. Be baptized into Christ for the remission of sins. Be added to the church you read about in the pages of the Bible. Not a denominational body, but the New Testament church for which Jesus truly died. Won't you come? While together we stand and while we sing.